Welcome to the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. I'm your host, Larry Witzel. Seventh-day Adventist churches grow differently, and our goal with this podcast is to offer practical training for effective evangelism in the Adventist ministry context. If you appreciate these podcast episodes, we'd love it if you could leave a review for us on whatever platform you're using. Your review, good or bad, will really help us. We'd also like to hear your thoughts on the Propel podcast directly. You can email us at podcast at propelconference.org. If there's something in particular you'd like to hear more of at a future Propel conference, or if there's anything else you'd like to tell us, please email us at podcast at propelconference.org. This episode continues Richie Halverson's breakout sessions on reaping meetings. Richie is Director of Church Growth and Revitalization for the Southern Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. He coaches churches, pastors, and lay leaders to maximize their impact in evangelism, church planting, and revitalization. When we first started talking about the Propel Conference last year, Richie and I were both at the Pastor Evangelism Leadership Conference at Oakwood University last December, and we spent quite a bit of time there just dreaming together about what Propel could be. And I really appreciate Richie's vision and passion for reaching hurting people for Jesus. This episode is the second of two breakout sessions that Richie did on reaping meetings. In this presentation, Richie continues with the practical details of how to hold evangelistic meetings, talking about things like evangelism marketing, building your teams of volunteers, and and how to make an appeal for decisions. If you want to improve your own effectiveness at holding evangelistic meetings, you'll get a lot from this episode. Before we get to his presentation, though, I'd like to mention our sponsor for this episode, Evangelide. How do you reach your community with relevant methods in the 21st century? Evangelide is a ministry designed to support the local church in doing their evangelistic outreach. The goal is to put more people in heaven. It's about learning, growing, and fine-tuning our presentation of the gospel in a way that is culturally relevant while remaining doctrinally pure. Evangelide provides coaching, training, resources, and even additional support funding for the local church. They coach conferences, pastors, laypeople, evangelism teams, and church boards who want to do something significant to reach their community with the gospel, as Adventists understand it. You can learn more about Evangelide on their website, evangelide.org. Okay, let's get to the heart of this episode. Here's the second breakout session by Richie Halverson at the 2023 Propel Conference on the topic of reaping meetings. So we finished off talking about style that, you know, um, style, we need many different styles. And if it works and it's biblical, then I'm good with it, right? And we don't need to get caught up in, in that Debate, and I don't have to tear down one style for another style. Um, this is important. Uh, but as I'll say again, if we're going to do a shorter reaping series, then let's make sure we do all the pre work that needs to be done. And that's why we do. We do nine months of intentional training, bridge events, seed sowing events, community events, so that when we do that reaping, it's, it's, an, it's an actual reaping event. So let me talk a little bit about advertising. And of course, you know, you are here. This is put on by Sermon View. And, and or they're one of the, I should say, one of the uh, groups that are putting this on. Very instrumental. And Sermon View, who is I often, who I use for my advertising. Uh, and so 
Uh, you know, here's a couple of things that we've done recently. Uh, our Darkness Will Not Overcome is my primary reaping series that I do. And then the Revelation series is something new that we're developing to team teach with pastors. So I'll, I'll go into a church and I'll, I'll team teach with a group of pastors. Usually they're on the advertising too. And we'll go in there and um, I may get it started and then the pastors finish that. I believe in, I believe in lay-led and pastoral-led evangelism. Uh, I believe in the professional evangelist coming in, but I think that should be the exception. Do that once every several years. The norm should be regular pastoral or lay-led evangelism. So we come in and I'll team teach with them because, uh, again, I believe we learn by doing. And so I try to do most of my instruction and teaching by doing it in the process of evangelism. So a lot of great designs Sermon View has, a lot of innovative things. I usually do social media advertising, so I'll talk to them and say, hey, I want to spend this much on social media. I still send out handbills. Uh, and I'll, I, I don't imagine I'll ever stop sending out direct mail. Um, uh, but I probably spend less on direct mail than I used to, and I try to diversify and do more social media and other things as well. Um, but I still just have too many people that come to my meeting through getting something in the mail for me to just say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. It still is, is pulls for me better than any other advertising that I've done. So uh, I'm going to keep doing it. If it works, I think Roger shared it at lunch. Um, if it works, I'm going to use it. I'm interested in what works. Um, so volunteers, that's a very important part of a reaping series. You want to have good volunteers. You got to have good volunteers. Um, you know, the, the more I can delegate. So what I'll usually do is I'll handpick my volunteer leaders, but then I let them pick their teams, but then they meet with me so I can go through that with them to just make sure there's no red flags that as a pastor I might consider that they may not think about. Um, but I, I, I don't ask for volunteers. I don't really believe in asking for volunteers, so I kind of, kind of ironic that I call them volunteers. I, I believe in empowering people. You never see Jesus saying, who here wants to be our children's ministry director? Jesus never said, who wants to be my disciples? He comes up to Peter, and he comes up to Andrew, he comes up to, you know, come follow me. He, 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 he sees them, he selects them, and he empowers them. And I believe the same thing with my volunteer team leaders. If you ask for volunteers for your head greeter, I promise you, the meanest person in your church is going to volunteer to be your greeter. So pick them. You, you know, as a lay leader or a pastor or whatever you, role you play, you know the people that are good with visitors, the people that are, that are going to be sensitive to that and, and they're good with people. And, and you want to handpick those. And so I always handpick my volunteer leaders and then I kind of help them in that process 
of selecting their team. So these are some of my volunteer teams. You know, I got my prayer team because as I talked about earlier, without prayer, our evangelism is just not going to be worth anything. Our prayer warrior team, they meet every night before the meeting and they're actively praying. I don't usually join them as the speaker because I'm having my own prayers getting ready for the series. Um, and, and so, but I know they're praying before the meeting and often during the meeting. So, prayer team, greeters. Um, I'm a big believer in, in greeters. This isn't just for uh, evangelistic meetings. Because, you know, that's, that's a problem. Because remember, we don't do evangelism. We, we live evangelism. And there's a problem when we're very intentional about this kind of stuff when we do an evangelistic series. But then when we're not doing evangelism, we're not intentional about it. We're terrible about it. Uh, not, not all churches. Not any churches in this area, but, you know, in other parts of the world. Um, they're just not intentional about greeting, you know. How do you connect with the, the people, the visitors, you know? What is, what is your system that you have in place? Um, and so I believe in, in, in really doing a lot of regular trainings with my, my greeters. Even as a pastor, we had monthly get-togethers with my greeters um, where we would talk about some things and go through and just continue to coach them uh, through this. Because first impressions are huge. Most people, once they have an impression of you, once, if, if they have a bad first impression, the chances of you changing that perception, it, it just is, it, it is very, it just doesn't happen uh, a lot. It takes a whole lot of work. So it's much better to just make a good first impression. Um, having greeters who are trained, who understand the importance of being kind and welcoming, but not overbearing, and have a good, the phrase we use today is a high EQ, right? EQ is emotional intelligence, okay? Someone who has good EQ, they're good at reading body language, they're good at, um, you know, kind of connecting with people and picking up signals, you know? That's important is with, with your greeters, um, my mom, uh, she tells the story of, of going to a, to a meeting. And, and this is another thing. Like, I believe in being warm and friendly, but also respecting territorial bubbles. And, you know, sometimes we want to hug people. But we got to remember, not everybody who comes wants to be hugged. Um, and, and understanding these ideas, that your idea of being super friendly may be not so friendly for other people. And I think understanding these things and empowering someone who can kind of get some of this and as a leader of your church, you know, every once in a while talking about some of these things, I think it's important. My mom tells a story when she goes to a church and, and she, she went there and, um, you know, she is a very friendly person, but um, she's not a, not a big hugger and... Um, and, and she came to, she was a visitor at the church, and, and you know, she came there, and a big guy, 6'5 or something, she came in, and she put her hand out to shake him, and he's like, oh, we don't shake here, we hug, and just grabbed her, and kind of picked her up when he hugged her, and she did not like that, and, and, and so he thought he was being friendly, 
But so, so I think we, we, we you know, we, we've got to be sensitive to this. And you can only get into the, this kind of reality by doing regular trainings. You can't just say be friendly because that's different for everybody. You need to teach people how to be appropriate and what to, you know, in, in those certain situations. So I, I can't stress the importance of, of your greeter team. Learning names. Dale Carnegie says that a person's name is to him or her the sweetest sound of anyone in any language. I get to know people's names. I believe in, in learning their names um, because that's just a powerful tool that, that lets people know that you're really listening. People say, well, I'm not good with names. No one is born good with names. People who are good with names practice tools in order to remember names. Often we can't remember names because we're not really listening to people when they tell us their name. And a simple thing you can do to remember names is when someone introduces themselves to you, and hey, we all forget names, that's okay, but when you forget a name, even if you've done it twice, because sometimes we'll forget their name like three times, and they're like, well, I can't go up to them and ask them their name again because that'll just seem like, no, it's better to, so then we avoid them. No, or we're like, hey, man, what's up? <laughs> you know, it's better to just say, I forgot your name. Can you remind me of your name? And then this time you remember it and you say it back to them and you think about their name and then use it in your conversation. So John, tell me about this. And uh, John, use it multiple times and you'll get better at remembering names. Little things like this working with your team. Same with your registration. You know, these are people that are, that are there. They're the, they're the front of your evangelistic series or your church. You need to make sure that they kind of are aware um, and know what's going on. You know, we always have ushers in, in the church. The main thing that we utilize our ushers for is they kind of operate um, as a you know, they'll, they'll walk out in the parking lot. They'll kind of be function as a semi-security, just presence. Um, we live in a day and age where we have to have a better understanding of church security um, because we live in a very violent world. And so um, I think you have to have a, a, a system in place. And having some ushers just kind of go out in the parking lot once or twice during the meeting um, to be available if it's raining, to have, to have umbrellas, to, to, you know, bring someone in, things like that, or, or what the ushers do. Also, when we make appeals, I'll use usually appeal cards, and I rely on my ushers to pass those out. And I train them, because when you do an appeal, time is of the essence, and so I train them to get those cards out into the people's hands as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, AV team, that's a huge, huge part of the ministry. Um, live streaming, if you're live streaming, you know, you need to have a leader of that element. Super important. Uh, a children's program is huge. Um, and that's usually one of the hardest roles to fill because that is a hard role. So children's ministries leader, you know, um, is good. And, and we, we want someone who, who can create a, a program or do like a mini VBS to make it really engaging, not just a, a kind of a babysitting thing, but a program that's actually engaging. Um, you know, those are important aspects of our volunteer teams. 
When it comes to evangelistic sermons of my reaping series, some of the things that I'll touch on is, of course, Christ-centered. I talked about this this morning. So every one of our evangelistic meetings needs to be Christ-centered. Every one of the sermons needs to be filled with Jesus through the lens of the gospel, whatever you're preaching on, whether it's you know death, state of the dead, whether it's uh, the Sabbath, you name it, all of it. Make much of Jesus. Um, I, can't, I can't stress that enough. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, I love it when he said, let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end. Crammed full of the gospel, people have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? And I always answer that I have no other secret but this, that I have preached the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel. There is a difference between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel. There is a big difference, all right? The full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ who is the incarnation of the good news. There ought to to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Make much of Jesus. When 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 we point people to Christ... Um, it, it, it is more empowering. We want people to leave feeling not, not focused on the sin. If I focus on the sin, I'll just feel like a big sinner, and, and that will not give me victory. But if I focus on my Savior, that's where victory is. And so make much of Jesus in your sermons. Every single sermon needs to have the gospel, because you know why? The gospel is what the Bible is about. It's what the Bible is about. And that's where I talk about this narrative, biblical narrative, preacher evangelism through the lens of the narrative of Scripture. And that is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. All of the biblical stories can go along with this biblical narrative. Every single story from the Bible ultimately is pointing to the ultimate story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he pulls along the disciples and they're upset because they thought, you know, that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to liberate them from, from Rome and then he gets killed and they don't know that it's Jesus and he pulls them aside and he takes them through the law, through the books of Moses and through the prophets and he shows them all the things concerning himself. He basically takes them to the Bible and he says, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. And then in Luke, at the end of the gospel, after that, it says it again, again and again and again, the Bible is about Jesus. So connect those stories. You know, that's the gospel. Let me give you some examples. So, David and Goliath, and Timothy Keller, who's a pastor, writer, famous, New York Times bestselling writer, he, he has a segment that he really covers this very well. But David and Goliath is not. Usually, you know, I grew up hearing the story of David and Goliath being told that, you know, if, if basically, if I, if, if, if I have the faith of David, then I can defeat the giants that come up against in life. That is not the message of David and Goliath. The message of David and Goliath is really about Jesus who who took on the greatest giants of our lives. So it's not me, but it's about 
Jesus. And he took on the real Goliath, the Goliath of death, and he was victorious. And now his victory is imputed to us as David's victory, even though we didn't lift a finger to do it. He did it. So victory is us. So the story of Esther is not, it's, it's, you know, Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't say, if I perish, I'll perish for them. He says, when I perish, I'll perish for them. He's, it's really, that's what the story of Jonah is about. You know, Jesus even connects the story of Jonah to his resurrection. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who doesn't run away from the will of God, but runs into the will of God, who he gets thrown into the storm so that the people can be saved. And so these are things, these connections that we need to be making of, of God's beautiful, redemptive grace. And, and as a result of encountering the gospel, obedience is a beautiful fruit that manifests um, you know, as a result of that. So the Bible was not written as an assortment of rules, but as one big love story. And, and sharing, we, our evangelism needs to reflect that. Um, it needs to be grace-oriented. People should leave thinking, not, well, man, what a great sinner I am, but oh, what a great Savior He is. Okay, so, so it needs to be Christ-centered, biblical narrative, grace-oriented. Um, I am saved, therefore I obey. Not obey and then you'll be saved. Sometimes as Adventists, we love to say you're saved by grace, but there's no but after that statement. You are saved by grace. Keeping the Sabbath does not make you any more savable than not keeping the Sabbath. Okay? That doesn't make you any more savable than the people that go to church on Sunday. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about being rebellious and, 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 and I, I believe in keeping the Sabbath, but again, it's a response of the salvation that is there. It is not something we do in order to earn the salvation. And so these are the things that we need to make sure that we're sharing to have a good balanced theology. We share the Sabbath. We share all the beautiful truths that, that, that are in Scripture. And obedience is important. Repentance is important. And confronting the idols are important. But ultimately, allow the Holy Spirit and, and God's grace is the greatest motivator to topple the, uh, the, the, the idols of hearts. Fear is a pretty good motivator, but love is a much better motivator. Okay? Um, and, and, and I've had people say that to me. You know, it's like, well, man, if there's not an eternal, everlasting hellfire, you know, how do you get people to join your church? <laughs> and I'm like, well, man, we don't want that to be the reason people are joining the church. And what a distorted view. But that, ever since before the Dark Ages, that was used as a way to manipulate people into joining the church instead of love being a way of joining the church. And we don't want to perpetuate that. We want evangelism or to, to be you know, relevant. So it speaks to everyday problems. How are the sermons not just talking about the beautiful prophetic hope that we have, but how is it speaking to problems that people are dealing with every day? So when I was struggling with addiction, I not only needed to know that I didn't, I didn't just need to know about um, 
I didn't just need to be saved from a future hell. I needed to be, I needed a gospel that would save me from my present hell right then. Does that make sense? Um, I didn't just need to know Jesus is coming soon, which I believe he is. Hallelujah. I needed to know that, that Jesus, that, that he can actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he can manifest within my life right now and could transform my life. You see, this is what I mean about relevant. It is something that, that you know, revelation is not just, in fact, I, I have it here. Write down what you have seen, things that are now happening and things that will happen. So revelation has relevance for the now and the not yet. So it's about future hope, but it's also about present hope. And so our evangelistic meetings always need to give people hope for what they're going through right now. You know, man, maybe some of you are going through a divorce right now. And, you know, some of you have lost children. Or maybe you're going through this experience. Or you're doing that and you're speaking to issues that people are dealing with. Um, and it gives hope to what they're going through right now. Um, and it also gives them the blessed hope of what is yet to come. Um, when Revelation 21.5, he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That is not a future statement. That's a present statement. So yes, one day, Jesus will finish making all things new. But this is saying Jesus is, is already making all things right, new right now in people's lives. Um, and, and so we need to preach messages that, that give hope for the future, but also relevant tools, practical tools uh, for the right now. Um, we believe in the historicist view of, of interpretation, amen? Um, but yet, it's, it's just mind-boggling, but we see more and more Adventists falling prey to this futuristic idea, futurist idea of prophecy. You know, where we just put everything in towards the end and we don't recognize and see the relevance. Revelation was relevant from John's day and every day since that day clear up to our day. Daniel is relevant for the prophet's day and every day since. And so we always need to have the present and the future um, aspects in our, in our evangelistic sermons. Appeals. So this is a big one when we talk about harvest uh, and reaping meetings is making appeals. So a sermon without an appeal is just information, but we're not in the business of information. We're in the business of transformation. So we're not, you know, we, we, we don't want to just share information. We want to be conduits for transformation. And so a sermon without an appeal is just information. We should always never preach a sermon and don't make an appeal. Doesn't mean it's always a baptism appeal. That doesn't mean it's always the same type of appeal, but always be appealing. Um, always be appealing. So there are different types of appeals. So one of the big things that I use now is I use a card that I'll use a couple of times during that week series where we will call for decisions. A lot of churches, if you don't have a card in the pew where people can mark for baptism, that is just such a simple tool where you can... Get decisions for baptism that you didn't even know existed. Um, I was, I was uh, pastoring a church and I made an appeal and an older couple came forward for the appeal. I thought they were members. I hadn't been there long. And they came forward for the appeal. I met with them afterwards. Older couple. They had been attending an Adventist church for 15 years, this church. 
And so I said, praise the Lord. I said, I'm so excited about your decision for baptism. And I said, so, so, you know, is this, and then I looked at, at E Adventists and I realized that they were not members. And so I asked them, I said, so, so, hey, what's put it on your heart to, to be baptized at this time? And, and they said, well, and, and, and I'll never forget what they said. They said, you were the first pastor who asked. And, and I'm like, you know, it's just, we, we need to ask more. We need to make appeals more. Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Altar calls. You know, some people don't like altar calls. I've, I've heard people criticize altar calls. And I mean, I, I look, I still do altar calls. I believe in altar calls. I use a lot of different types of appeals. Um, but uh, I think the altar call is still a very powerful appeal because it gives people something that they can physically respond to this decision. And until, we can think stuff here, but until we physically act out on it, sometimes it doesn't become a reality. So that's what's powerful about altar calls. This is the decision card that I use. You know, I want to surrender all to Jesus and his transforming grace. I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized. I would like to begin to study the Bible. I want to become a member of this church family. I don't put, I want to join this church by profession of faith because, you know, that, that's more complicated than this. Now, when I meet with them, I go over what that means. I go through, so have you been baptized by immersion? I kind of talk them through this process. And, and at that point, we kind of triage, you know, whether this is a baptism or it needs to be a rebaptism or if a profession of faith is good. But I want to make it as simple as possible. I want to become a part of this church family. I also, I never, and it's not because I'm, I'm I, I just, it's much more approachable to say, I want to become a part of this family than for saying, do you want to join the church organization? That doesn't sound too warm and comforting. No one wants, I, oh yeah, I want to join an organization. <laughs> no one wants to do that. So change the language to family. Uh, because that's just, that, that's what it needs to be. It needs to be a church family. When I'm visiting with someone, so when I've, when, when I've preached on the Sabbath, I'll usually have a decision card. And I am making appointments, I'm going to talk about this more, I'm jumping ahead, but visitation, and I'm meeting with that person, and, and, I, and, I, and I start talking, I said, hey man, what did you think about that message last night? And, um, and you know, from that response, you can respond, so some people will say, oh yeah, man, that was awesome. I've always thought the Sabbath was this time, you know? And then, and then I'll say, well, well, praise the Lord. Do you see the importance of becoming a part of a family that's teaching this? Yes. And so here, I, I, I frame things as questions instead of, you know, these very kind of, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this. I frame it. I allow them to make their decision. I, I allow them to make the call. Um, and I frame it as a question, and it's much more effective they say, you know, you see the importance of joining the Sabbath, you know. What's going to keep you from becoming a part of this church? I had, a, I had an individual, had been attending my church for two years, came to like three evangelistic meetings, um, and she made, she made a decision 
to be baptized, but she said, I, she goes, Pastor, I want to be baptized, but, but why do I have to join the church? And, and I'm getting, you get that a lot more now than used to. Um, and, and, you know, I said, I said, Laura, you have been coming to my church for the last three years. You know what we believe. You know what we teach. Um, you agree with that? Yes. So I guess my question is, why not? And, and she couldn't respond to that question. And she joined the church. Um, sometimes people just have a hard time making a commitment. And so we as leaders can help through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can help diffuse some of those ideas of, of just a, not wanting to make a commitment. Um, we don't want to push people into making that decision. Um, it's the Holy Spirit. But we do need to help people in that decision process. Um, people, I, I had, a, I had a, someone in a, I was doing a field school, and they used to, we said that a lot more, pushing for decisions. And, you know, um, people didn't like that as much. Um, and, and I get it. We don't want to be pushy. And I've seen evangelists be pushy, like, you better do this or else. And I don't, again, I don't agree with the fear as the motivator. Um, but I'll never forget, they, the person spoke up and said, well, I don't like this idea of pushing people. We shouldn't push people. And, and I understood, again, what they were saying, but here's the thing. We know the devil is trying to push them into hell. What's wrong with me trying to push them or give them a little nudge towards heaven? Amen? And, and we need to be there to help people make decisions because we have a hard time making decisions. Period. We do. Um, and so, again, they, it needs to be their decision. We don't want to manipulate or coerce someone to make a decision they're not ready to make. But you can usually tell whether someone is ready to make a decision or not. You can tell when someone's just putting it off because they want to put it off or, they're, or it's fear or whether it's, they just don't see it right now. And you need to adjust accordingly. Music is an important point of my appeals. You know, I'll have music start playing and we'll have someone sing and I'll jump in there as I'm making the appeal. Kind of like you saw last night when we did this anointing service. Follow up. If someone's made a decision for baptism or they made a decision for joining the church, I am immediately following up with them. Usually right after the service, I say, hey, any, everybody who came forward, I'm going to be meeting with you in a room right here to the side, and I'm going to have a quick prayer with you. I'm getting their number, I'm getting their contact, and I am finding a way to follow up with them. Uh, and an important part of follow-up is, is, you know, because if you don't follow up with them, then what will happen is you'll drop the ball, time will go by, the sense of urgency will leave, and they may end up deciding they don't want to be baptized because the devil comes in like a flood to try to discourage, discourage that person. And that's why sealing decisions is so important. Once someone makes that decision for baptism, my next response is, praise the Lord. Man, you know, let's look at our calendar. When can we make this happen? And what really helps, even if you have to study with them more, okay? So maybe you got to study with them a little bit more. You can still put it on a calendar. 
you can still, you know, I don't, you know, even if it's a month out, put it on the calendar that keeps you accountable and it keeps them accountable and, and, and meet with them between now and then. Study with them. That's top priority. When I have decisions for baptism, I, I'll, 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 um, I, I will not show up at a board meeting if I need to meet with someone to seal a decision for baptism. I will not come to the executive committee meeting, the finance committee meeting. I mean, you name it, that's priority. Baptisms, as far as I'm concerned, in discipleship are priority. And so this is the number one. Seal those decisions. Um, the early church certainly did. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice, again, the Bible's about Jesus. He was reading from Isaiah. And beginning with that verse, he starts telling him the good news about Jesus. He's preaching the narrative of Scripture, which is Jesus. And after they were going along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And look at this. He commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In the New Testament church, there was a sense of urgency to the baptism. What are you waiting for? Don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. And I think that we've lost some of that sense of urgency. It needs to be their decision. But we need to make sure we are not coming between them and that decision. It's not about whether you think that they're ready. It's whether or not the Holy Spirit thinks that they're ready. And yes, as leaders and maybe pastors or lay pastors were involved in that. Um, you got to have those difficult conversations. I had a couple, made a decision for baptism. You know, I went through the Sabbath with them. I went through some of those core testing truths like, you know, you're going to become a part of this church, and these are some of the things that we believe, and yes, 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 yes. But then the pastor kind of pointed out, and I hadn't noticed this before, but on their decision cards, they had been there together every night, and I assumed that they were married, which you can't make that assumption in today's day and age. I see that they have the same address but different names. And that's a delicate subject. I don't go and say, well, hey, are you two married? I say, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me your story. And I talk to them and I just listen to them and they're talking to me. And then, um, <laughs> and so as I say that, they start saying, yeah. She goes, you know, we're good friends from way back. And, and, and they said, um, and she quickly said, well, pastor, because again, this is in the Bible Belt. She's like, pastor, don't worry, we're not living in sin. And, and she said, actually, my apart I have an apartment, a complete separate apartment. He's got a complete separate apartment. I was able to visit with them in their home. They, they were friends. It was completely and totally legit, separate living spaces. And see, through that process of just talking to people, dialoguing with people, finding solutions... For problems, um, you're able to help facilitate that decision as best as possible. Now, if they're still living together, I'm going to do the best I can to meet them where they are, but I am going to confront this issue. I'm going to talk about some of, that th some of that issue. You know, hey, you guys have been living together for five years. What's hindering you from being married? You know, I'm going to have some of those difficult conversations once that trust is established. But again, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to ultimately lead and direct. Um, so I'm not suggesting, oh, baptize them when they're doing this or that, and they're actively rebelling against God. But if they understand 
um, that something is, is in their life that is counter to what the Bible says, and they're willing to say, you know what, Pastor? I'm going to surrender this to the Lord, and I'm going to entrust this to Him. And I'm going to work with you, Pastor, um, you know, in, in this area of my life. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I can to baptize them. You know? I don't believe we can take a one staunch approach to people. You know, uh, people struggles with cigarette smoking still, you know, and again, I know this is kind of a touchy subject. Um, if someone says to me, Pastor, I'm struggling with cigarettes and I've been struggling for a while, uh, I'm going to tell them, well, hey, I struggle with cigarettes and God gave me the victory. God, I know can give you victory. Man, let's, let's, let's bring them with us down into the, into the watery grave, but let's leave them there. And I'm not going to micromanage whether or not, I'm not going to say, well, you need to not smoke for two weeks before I baptize you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to micromanage their miracle. That's between them and the Holy Spirit. I can say this, though, of everybody that I baptized who is still struggling with cigarettes um, that I knew of, because there's some that you don't even know that are members of your church that smoke, uh, not a single one of them smoke today. Um, and they would come up to me like six months later and they said, Pastor, because it's a journey. Maybe you got victory overnight. Other people may take a, a year, two years. Um, and I think just meeting people where they are and, and, and recognizing that ultimately God brought them to you and, and they are convicted to be baptized. Do whatever you can to be able to help facilitate that. Recognizing that discipleship, the bulk of it happens after baptism, not before. Um, it, when sealing decisions, uh, you know, in sales, I worked in sales for a while, but uh, I use this same acronym, always be closing. Basically, I was taught, like, when you're talking to someone and they're ready, then you just, you, you seal that decision. And, I, you know, I, I saw people in sales talk people out of a sale that they were ready to buy, and they talked them out of it. I've seen people who made decisions for baptism, I've watched pastors and lay people talk them out of that decision because they just kept talking and they, and they kept throwing up obstacles and stumbling blocks. Get out of the way. Just seal that decision, affirm that decision, put it on the calendar, and then continue studying with them. I told you, set a date, visitation, adjust. You know, this is something that's really important when I'm out visiting people who are coming to my meetings and if I see that they're not ready to make a decision, you know, they're just not at that place where they're ready to make that decision. I don't want to compromise that, 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 that lead, that interest. So I'm not going to come on. I'm, I'm going to ch immediately change my posture and I'm going to say, man, we're just so glad that you've been coming to the meeting and I'm going to try to keep them coming to my church. Because I know that if, if the Holy Spirit, I know the Holy Spirit will continue working on them. And if I can just keep them coming to church, I know that he'll eventually get a hold of them. And I want it to be their decision. And so if you know someone's not ready to make that decision, don't compromise that relationship just because you feel like that needs to happen on your timetable. Adjust. Don't get into arguments. Once you reach the argument level, You've lost it. Uh, don't argue with them. Uh, just adjust and say, well, praise the Lord. We've been loving having you at this meeting. And we've got this coming up at the conclusion of this series. I've got this that's happening. And I'd love for you to come to that. 
and be a part of that. We're just glad that you've been worshiping with us. Um, so those are some things that uh, you, can, you can also do. Is, is, and that's what I love about pastoral evangelism. You know, the, the evangelist that comes in, they often feel the pressure to, to reap those while they're there. And that's for several reasons. One, it is true that often if you don't get them, then it's going to be hard to get them later. But it's also because they're leaving, and, and often, and I'm coming from an evangelist family, you know, um, those numbers, and, and we shouldn't be always focused on the numbers and individuals, but they're wanting to get those while they're there because that's the way they're kind of measured, the success of their meetings. But for a pastor, I loved it because I could do evangelism, and if the people were not ready, those that were not ready, I didn't feel that like I had to get them right then to make that decision. I could allow the Holy Spirit to work. I could give it more time. Because I knew with a constant cycle of evangelism, I'm always going to have reaping opportunities. And so I know if we can just keep them coming to church, the Holy Spirit's going to do his thing. Uh, the baptism. Uh, man, this is why we do evangelism. Uh, baptism. Uh, you want to have a baptism every reaping series. If someone makes a decision for baptism a couple weeks before your reaping series, why not schedule it for when the reaping series is here? Whether it was that actual series that did it or not, that's kind of irrelevant because if we're doing evangelism as a way of a life and not as an event, then at some point in that process, um, God got a hold of them and they made that decision. The reason you want to do a baptism during the reaping is because you have invested money into this and people have to be reminded constantly why we do evangelism. This is why we do it. This is why we invest money into evangelism. You've got to remind people of these things. I, I'll never forget, I had a newer member who I baptized through evangelism come up to me. And I was just sitting there and listening, and they said, you know, man, we spend all this money on evangelism, but none of these people ever stay. And I'm thinking to me, this is ironic, because they came in through an evangelistic meeting, and they've stayed. And I knew <laughs> they had heard this from someone else. Someone else had said this, and they were just kind of repeating it. And I started going through all the names of the people that had come in through evangelism just in the four years that I had been there. And I started going there like, wait a second, wait, they, oh, they came to a meeting, oh, they came to evangelism, they came in through this, oh, they, and suddenly they, the light went on and they realized that they were repeating something that really didn't have any truth in it. People forget about that. And it's not that you've got to, you know, it's not about you getting credit or anybody else getting credit. It's about giving God credit. But people have to be reminded always of the mission. When I'm baptizing people, I'm like, man, this is why we do it. I praise God for this church in supporting evangelism. It's because of you supporting evangelism that this has happened today. And, and, I, and, I, and I recognize that. So baptism, again, I've already talked about this. It's the beginning. It's not the end. Uh, we've swapped that. We've kind of made it to where people need to know everything before they're baptized, but I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. They need to have that basic understanding because they are becoming a part of the church. But friends, if they can, you know, bulk of the teaching, 
is on the other side. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you is after we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So recently I spoke at a camp meeting down in Florida and uh, this individual uh, right here is Dick Mosley. He's a retired pastor. Um, and in one of the places we've done a revitalization campaign, and that's Lewis, and uh, I believe Deborah, his wife, that is with him. So Dick Mosley's just established, developed a relationship with his neighbor. You know, they've just become friends. Um, my dad did an evangelistic series. Lewis came to a couple of meetings, but didn't come to a lot of the meetings, but he came to a few of them. Then um, Dick brought Lewis to camp meeting. And, and I made an appeal, and Lewis came forward. And when Lewis made a decision for baptism, and, and this is that afternoon, his wife said, man, if you're going to be baptized, I was feeling like I needed to be baptized too. So she made the decision to be baptized. And, and Dick Mosley, which he's, you know, he's, he's not, this isn't his first rodeo. He is an evangelist pastor. He tried to do everything he could to facilitate that. And he came up to me and he says, man, Lewis made a decision. And he says, and, and we've talked some about we, what we believe. And he understands. He's got a basic understanding of what we believe. Um, but he wants, and he wants to be baptized and join the church. And he says, and, and we're going we're gonna to begin studying after this baptism. And, and that's what I mean. We need to do everything we can to make that baptism happen as quickly as we can um, in order to just seal that decision. And, and so praise God that he was willing to baptize Lewis and Deborah there that afternoon after he had come forward for that, that appeal. Because baptism is just a beginning. It is not a graduation into sainthood. It is a new birth. And uh, we need to recognize that. Celebrate it. You know, we always, you know, we always... Welcome them to the family. We'll usually have some kind of a special lunch and we'll have a cake made. Welcome to the family. And we'll just really celebrate it. The Bible says, man, when we look at all those parables of the lost, right, it was always after every, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, they always had a party. Each one, they threw a party. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, we need to celebrate evangelism. We need to celebrate decisions. Uh, we would always have, I had these nice baptismal invitations that I had printed up that when my baptismal candidates, we would set a date, I would give them a stack of these that they could give to their family as an invitation to come to their baptism. Because when they would bring family to their baptism, I knew that that was a perfect opportunity to be able to make connections with family. Build relationships. Grow the kingdom. Your greatest evangelists and, and avenues to unchurched people far from God are going to be your new believers. Because after you've been in the church so long, you usually only have Adventist friends. And so I always find a way to connect with people. Um, uh, I, I also will always recognize those who are involved in that meeting. If a member brought someone to church, I don't care if the only thing they did was invite them to come to a series. I don't care how big or how small their involvement was in that decision. I, 
And again, it's not about getting the pat on the back. It's about giving God the glory. But I'm going to recognize that member and their involvement in evangelism. I want to I recognize that. And in fact, if, if, if some of the people that were very instrumental and they studied with them, I usually will invite them to come into the baptistry with me as, as we baptize the individual. Because they've developed a relationship with them. And I know they're going to continue to disciple them and mentor them. So that's so super important. Um, we got to nurture these people. Man, I check on my new members on a regular basis. If I don't see them at church, they're getting a phone call from me. Not in a, hey, where were you sort of way, but just, hey, it's Pastor Richie. How you doing? Just checking in. Oh, doing great, Pastor. Hey, sorry you missed church, but da-da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, I just, I'm, look, we're supposed to be shepherds. And if you hired a shepherd, and, and at the end of the day, you went up to the shepherd and said, how are my sheep doing? And the shepherd were to say, you know, um, oh, oh, fine, you know, some of them, you know, they went over here and, and, and they went off the cliff, but that's their own fault. And some of them went over here and I lost a few, but that was their decision. You know, if someone ever said that to you, you would fire them in a heartbeat. They're a terrible shepherd. Shepherds are, you know, they've got their eyes on the flock and they're thinking about their people and they're checking on them. And the biggest thing that shepherds got to protect the sheep from is themselves sometimes. And so we're always just involved in these people's lives. And that's not just the pastor's job. That's, that's all of our jobs. But we got to be intentional, intentional about that. Um, Follow-up. So we've just got a couple more. Follow-up, and, and I want to touch on discipleship. So I always have a next thing. When I finish a reaping series, I already have my next big event. Usually it's that midweek preaching series or it's life groups. That was a way I could really simplify my yearly calendar of evangelism. Just a constant rhythm that was sustainable for me and my members. When I, hey, when I was doing the midweek preaching series for a couple months, yeah, I'm preaching two sermons a week. Sometimes three if I had two services, you know. But, when we were doing life groups, I didn't lead a life group. My members led life groups, and I wanted that to be lay-led. And I would often visit some of the life groups, um, but uh, it was a way where we, we shared that responsibility and that leadership, so neither of us got burned out. So I always have the next thing, whether it's a Daniel class or I'm going to do something. If you do something on prophecy, if you do a prophecy series, it's good to have a follow-up. So if I do a Revelation series, it's not a bad idea to do a Daniel follow-up series because if people came to prophecy, they're interested in that. And so you can continue that dialogue with them through a series and you can hold on to the people who maybe weren't ready to make a decision at the time, but they're going to keep coming to your Daniel class or something like that. Um, or I've got a next, you know, hey, and I'm already promoting that the last week of the evangelistic series. Because again, I, I want them to see this is a, this is a constant systematic thing. You always got to have that next thing. Because what, if, what will happen if you don't? You end this evangelistic series and you're like, oh, and you're on this spiritual high. And then suddenly the church goes back to former mode where maybe there wasn't as many opportunities or things that are happening and it's so easy for new believers to get discouraged 
to kind of fall away, to not get plugged in. And so I always have kind of that next thing um, for people. Spiritual friends. I do not assign spiritual friends because I don't think you can assign friends because that that has to happen naturally and organically. I can help facilitate it. If I know John has a passion that is similar to Bill, then I can say, man, John enjoys doing that. I'd love to connect you. I can be a facilitator of that, but I don't usually assign it. What I do to help cultivate spiritual friends is we have life groups. We, we have different ways of plugging people into where it happens naturally. Um, I'll meet with the new believer and I'll say, so hey, have you found some people that you've connected with? Um, You know, that can help mentor you and disciple you. And so that's the way I do it. I'm intentional about providing opportunities for it to happen more naturally. Um, and, And so, but the concept of spiritual friends is important. I just, I haven't seen a lot of success with assigning people those friends. I've seen it happen best when it happens more naturally. But I am still watching, coaching, and trying to be used as a, by the Holy Spirit to make those connections happening. Also involvement. Um, nothing makes people stay in the church more than being needed. Giving them a job. Um, that's what I love about church planting. That's why I believe instead of, and I love big churches. I'm not anti-big church. I've pastored larger churches. But the thing is, is one of the things that we are missing most in the, in the Adventist church is a good discipleship pathway. Most of our churches, we just, we baptize them and then that's it. And we don't have a good model of discipleship. And so, um, you know, that's something that we kind of struggle with. Uh, but what I love about church plants is, is, that, is, is that, you know, when a church is new, you don't have time to put people in a pew and let them sit for two years until you get around to them. You immediately put them to work. When you plant a church, you immediately, hey, we need a sound guy. You know how to run sound. Man, could you help us with this? You know, you're immediately plugging people in. And so I really believe in, in multiplying. We need many more smaller churches that are discipling on a regular basis. Get people involved because nothing will hold on to them more than, than, than getting them involved. Um, I baptized, one of the young adults I baptized um, grew up in the church, but never was baptized, ended up leaving the church. And, 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 I'll, and I asked him, so, you know, and he would go in and out of the church, in and out of the church. And I said, well, well why have you stayed this time? And he said, well, because I have, I have a purpose. I'm, I have a job. I have something to do. Get people involved. Do spiritual gift assessments. Uh, try to align their passions with a ministry. I try not to micromanage people's ministry. If people come up to me with a ministry idea, I'm like, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Go for it. As best I can, I want to support that. Um, It doesn't have to run everything through the board. Uh, Often the board meeting can be where ministry bottlenecks and where where the Spirit dies. And I've had, all my churches have had great church boards. But man, people don't need board approval to do ministry. You know, um, and so, 
something to consider. And then of discipleship. When it comes to discipleship, we don't need a program. We need principles. Um, you know, I would say the closest thing to discipleship, biblical discipleship, for me, it was in the rooms of 12-step recovery where you find a, a mentor, a sponsor, and you, you say, will you be my sponsor? And they guide you through the 12 steps, which are biblical principles. And, you know, my sponsor said, I want you to call me every day for, 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 for the next uh, couple weeks just to check in early in recovery. After that, we were talking on a, on a weekly, bi-weekly basis. We had monthly sponsorship meetings where we would get together with a group of us. Um, and we would get together for an annual camp out uh, in a sponsorship family. Um, we would get together to, to just do ministry. He took me with him. Uh, I'll never forget. He, he took me with him to go into the prisons to carry a message of hope to the prisons. And he took me with him. He'd get, we call it service work and recovery. And he gave me service work and things to do. And let me tell you, that stuff saved my life. It gave me a sense of purpose. So, that's, that's the end of the presentation. I'd love to hear any questions that anybody has as we start to wrap up uh, our afternoon presentation. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, I, and I touched on this uh, quite a bit more in my first presentation, but I think it's, it's, it is the most, for me, it was the most, one of the most important things that we implemented. Um, everybody is a little different, and you can ask someone this, and you'll get 20, 20 different people, you get 20 different responses. I'll just share what worked for me. And it was kind of, kind of a, 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 a blend of several different methods that I had seen done. So not permanent life, we call them life groups. Because what we have found is, is, is just we need to take our members back to the most basic level of just learning how to build relationships with people. Um, because we're doing so much stuff evangelistically that, that, you know, if, if, if our people are just blessing and building relationships, we feel like they'll have other opportunities. The Holy Spirit can make those decisions. Most of our people know how to study the Bible, um, but we struggle with building relationships. So we called them life groups, and basically it was just doing life together. So maybe it was a hobby, and we had mountain bike life group, basketball life group. We had any kind of life group that people wanted to do that they would open and invite their neighbors and start engaging people in their context. Um, we, but we did not do them permanently either. They were, we did life groups twice a year. We would run it for three months. So you cycle on and you cycle off. They're, 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 you know, Nelson Searcy is a writer who's written several books on small groups that are very good resources. So check out Nelson Searcy. He's not an Adventist, but he's, it's good biblical concepts on small groups. And I've liked a lot of his stuff on small groups. Uh, it's S-E-A-R-C-Y or E-Y, but Google Nelson Searcy and, and you'll get it. Um, so I do them twice a year for three months because what it's going to do is, so we alternate, Barry, between small, so we'll do life groups for three months and then we'll go and I'll do a midweek preaching worship series 
for three months. And then we cycle off that and we go back into life groups and we go back into the midweek preaching. So all year long, we are kind of cycling through these and we'll take a couple weeks off in between. Life groups, we have signups. So a month before we do it, we have signups in the foyer of the people who have said, hey, I want to lead, lead the basketball life group. I'm going to start a mountain bike life group. And we're promoting this in the church. If you're willing to lead a life group for the next three months, um, connect with me or connect with the, this individual. And, and it was through that process we started to build it. And the first time we did it, a cycle of life groups, we only had, I think, about eight life groups. But every time we did it, we had more people. When, it's, when people are not signing on for life, they're more apt to do it. And, um, and there were other ways that we tried to help make a success. But for us, that worked. Um, is getting people in their homes and just building relationships. Um, we, we didn't have tons of Bible study life groups. And the reason for, again, for me was our members usually don't have a hard time breaking down the Bible. We know Bible will, real well, but we aren't always as good with building relationships. And so that's what we were trying to do through our life groups. And so people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And so we just wanted them to be engaging their community and having neighbors over for this. And so that's kind of the principle behind that. Some were at home. Some life groups were, you know, at a park. Some life groups were, it was up to the small group leader. That simplifies things as a pastor or a lay leader. I did not micromanage. So, so if, if a leader said, hey, I want to lead the sewing life group. And this is where I'm going to do it. Um, then uh, usually, unless there was any big red flag, I let them have that life group where and when they wanted to do it um, as best as possible. That's what we did. Um, some of the life groups were at the church. Some of the life groups were people's homes. Some of the life groups were at different areas. Um, and, and so that was really up to, the, uh, up to the small group leader. Any other questions before we close with the word of prayer? Yeah. You know, this is a hard one because it is, it is it, you know, it, it, I think we're so engineered. I, 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 my best example of, of discipleship that I've seen, again, is in 12-step recovery where we are intentional about making connections with people and we are mentoring them in life and in Scripture. So I, I think that there's no program that's going to fit that paradigm. And I've not run into a program that, that I think is, oh, this is a great, you know, I, I've seen different programs that you can blend together that can create a good discipleship pathway, but I haven't. And I think it's just, it's, 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 it's mentorship, it's connecting people in these small groups so that spiritual friends happen, it's training your elders to never do ministry alone, um, and as a pastor, it's never doing ministry alone. You know, I never go to a hospital without taking someone alongside with me. And so that's, when you look at the New Testament church, it was like that was ministry. You know, they would come into the church, then they were eating together, they were doing life together, they were laughing together. It wasn't just sitting around. You know, discipleship, we've confused discipleship with indoctrination. We think that if you've got the doctrines, you've been discipled. That is not discipleship. Okay, discipleship is a lifelong process 
of growing spiritually, being active in mission, being involved in the church. Uh, and, and so as, as leaders, we need to always be mentoring people in ministry. And I think that's where we drop the ball the most is just we're not really mentoring individuals and, and having people come alongside us in ministry like, like we should. Uh, I don't have a clear-cut answer for you on that because I think the pathway is different for everybody. But for me, having this cyclical form of evangelism with life groups, with doing a reaping series, with doing community events, people were discipled naturally. So when I do evangelism at my reaping meeting, the new believers that come in through that series, they're always going to be my volunteer team, a part of my volunteer teams for the next series. And so they're, they're automatically, and I know they're also going to have friends and connections, and they're going to connect with them. So I am very intentional about having them be shadowed, having them shadow people, plugging them into ministry, getting them involved, having my elders take them out, getting them involved. Um, and I just, think, I, I just think it's doing life together. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. And, and being intentional about plugging them into that, getting members involved and helping members see that it is a part of their responsibility to bring someone alongside them and, and, and yeah, be there and equip them, empower them uh, to, do, to do the work. Absolutely. And to be there as a support. Follow up on them. You know, our, you know it, it shouldn't just be the pastor. You know, as a, as a pastor, I would always tell my members, don't call me to visit someone until you visited someone. Don't call me and tell me to call someone. Pastor, you need to call this person. I'm like, the Holy Spirit put them on your heart. And I appreciate you telling me about it. And I'm going to call them, but, but you call them first. And I think, I think we got to do that where we remind, we, we, we've bought into, the early Adventist church understood this. We were much more, we, you know, it was all lay driven. It was, it, you know, it was very different than it is now. We have become very pastor dependent. And, and yet, on the same hand, as pastors, we can't just say, oh, well, it's not my job to do this, this, this. I'm just here to train you and you do it. No. You train them, yes, but you got to do it too. If we're asking our members who are volunteers to do this, and we as paid pastors are not willing to go above and beyond, then we can't expect any of our members to do it either. <laughs> so, it, I, you know, and, and I see a lot of young pastors make this mistake, and I'll hear them say these things, and it's just cringeworthy, because I know immediately what, what their members are thinking when they go in there and say, well, this isn't my job to do this, uh, you know, to, it's, to, it's to get you to do this. Well, yes and no. The best way to do it is through modeling it. Jesus did not call the disciples into a room and then teach them like I just did. He said, come and see. And he showed them how to do ministry. He healed people. He fed people. He loved people. And then through that three and a half year process, the disciples just barely started to get it. Uh, and they still struggled with it after that too. So any other questions before we close with the word of prayer? Yeah. 
So, you know, you're going to get, if you asked 100 people what an Adventist disciple should look like, you're going to get 100 different answers. Um, you know, some people, it's, it's to do this, this, and this. Um, and for others, it's not that. I mean, I, I believe, I, I, you know, some people, is, if you do not dress this way, then you, you're not an Adventist. If you do not eat this way, you are not an Adventist. So there is cultural Adventism that's not the same as discipled kingdom-building believer. Okay? Um, so I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, and, and we also can't say, well, this is what it looks like to be a good Adventist um, because you can... You can have all those truths, and I believe in every one of our biblical teachings, but you can have that up here, like the, like the Pharisees did, and you can still become completely worthless to kingdom building. In fact, not only worthless, but you can become a detriment. And we've got many churches, and I'm going to just be honest with you, this is sad, but some churches out there, the best thing that they could do for church growth would be to close their church. Because they are toxic and they are almost incestuous in this idea of, of them thinking that, the, and, and such incredible pride that they are unable to even connect with their local community at all. And they're so worried about Babylon infecting them that they have become Babylon and they didn't even realize it. So I don't know what you're aiming at so much with that question. Um, as far as you know that, I can't, I can't define that. I believe in sola scriptura. <laughs> I believe in everything that the Bible says. I, I believe it's Bible. I'm Adventist. Because that is the closest thing to the Bible that I found. I'm not Adventist because I think I'm, you know, better than anyone. That's going to save me. Most people will say, well, hey, our message is to share that three angels message, that, that last message before Christ returns. And I would agree with that. But my idea of three angels message may be very different than a lot of other people that I meet as far as you know, the three angels' message in nuts and bolts is the gospel, okay? It's not, you know, oh, you're Babylon and, and I'm not. It, it's, it's for all of us to come out of Babylon. Even the church has Babylon and it's to kind of come out of that process. It's to share the gospel. But ultimately, Babylon is works-oriented righteousness, you know, it's to, to oppose God. It's to work your way up to God. So, you know, you're asking these questions that I don't, I, I, and I know what you're saying. You're just asking. You're kind of wrestling this, and I agree with you. Um, but I, I do think that we are called to and been given a very unique message. I don't think we're always so good at connecting that, that beautiful message in a beautiful way. I think we've got some work to do. There, there is a bit of an identity crisis that can exist, and this is in all of Christendom, but we even see it. And, and, but I see a lot of good things happening in the Adventist church, and I praise God for our, our generations before and our generations that will come out there. I pray this is the last generation before Jesus comes. 
But the fact is, I, I, think, I, I think you're right. But, but I do believe that in this process, God is refining His people. Um, and um, we have a beautiful message. And, and my hope is that we can take this beautiful message and we can be able to apply it in our lives and we can connect with people so that we can share this beautiful message with others. Uh, and I think that's the key is, is how do we break this down in the most simplest way to share it with people in, in the most simple of situations. So, hey, I'll, I'll be here to, to kind of chat for a few minutes if anybody has a question, wants to meet one-on-one. But let me go ahead and kind of let everybody else go. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this um, this, this, this uh, conference, Lord, I thank you for each person that's here. I thank you for the privilege we have to team up, to be able to serve the, the creator of the universe. Lord, I pray you would be with us, guide us, direct us. Um, Lord, you're going to empower us. Every situation, every community is unique. The, the message doesn't change, but the methods have to and so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would inspire, empower each person here to approach their unique community of unique individuals with the beautiful, central message of the gospel, the liberating message of Jesus Christ, Lord, that, that people will see how much you love them. And by seeing your beautiful character and how much you love them first, uh, they'll fall in love with you. Help us to love people, be patient with people, Lord. Help us to, to just be patient with them, love them through the process of transformation. Help us to be able to connect with our communities so we can share this beautiful message. Guide us, direct, direct us, Lord. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we did at the Propel Conference this year was the practice of reflection. Stop for a moment and think about how this could be applied to your ministry. What you just heard, is there a big idea that just really captivated you? Um, how are you going to take this and apply it in your own church? And when this episode finishes up in a bit, I encourage you to pause for a few minutes and just let your mind wander and let it seep deep in reflection. Uh, this time can be really powerful, so I encourage you to do that. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at propelconference.org. Special thanks to Richie Halverson for speaking at the Propel Conference this year and to the sponsor of this episode, Evangelide. This has been the Propel Podcast, inspiration and training to grow your church. The Propel Podcast is sponsored by the North Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. The event recording services were provided by Adventist Learning Community. And the podcast is produced by the crew at Sermon View Evangelism Marketing. I'm Larry Witzel, wishing you God's richest blessing in your evangelistic journey. Please join us again next time for another episode of the Propel Podcast. Mm-hmm.